Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
would stand, please, in the hearing of God's Word. I'm not going to have you turn anywhere today. I want you to listen to Paul's words here. This paragraph from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it's always been in my mind one of the, I consider the, the death nail of Arminianism. It really speaks to the sovereignty of God in salvation. And a lot of people disagree with that, but I, I can't see it any other way. He starts in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starts in verse 11, and he says, Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? Okay, now, to understand that, think about it. You may know my thoughts, and you may or may not be right, but true, only my spirit truly knows my own thoughts. And Paul continues and says, So also no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And he says, now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. He says, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. The ramifications of that, the very next verse where he says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You must have the Spirit of God in order to understand the things of God. So if you today are someone who loves and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know for certain that as John wrote in 1 John, that you love him because he first loved you. And so there may be someone here today, and you never know, even in a small group like ours, who doesn't have that love, doesn't have that trust, that surety in Christ. And I urge you to run to Christ and plead for mercy. Ask Him to give you a heart that loves and trusts Him. But if you are His, then join me in thanking God that just as Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, He granted you repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Let's sing it together.
turn in your Bibles to Romans 2. Hopefully you will remember everything we talked about last week. That's right, everything. I hope you remember everything we talked about last week. Because it's going to come into play with what we're going to read this morning. If you don't remember everything that you heard last week, I hope you at least remember the emphasis that we placed on the Jew-Gentile distinction, because that is definitely going to come into play this morning. I was in Franklin, Tennessee years ago. There was a new church starting up over there. A friend of mine was pastoring it. He invited me to come attend a special service they were having because they were going to have a guest preacher who had come down from Kentucky. So I decided to go over and show my support. So I sat there and listened to this preacher from Kentucky. If I said his name, he's relatively well known in sovereign grace circles, but I won't call his name. He read from chapter 2 of Romans, verse 28 and 29, and he preached just those two verses, which say, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. He really emphasized he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but one who is inwardly a Jew. And then he spent the next 15, let's say 20, okay, half hour, dancing around the platform, yelling, I'm a Jew. That's what he got from those two verses. This is very, very typical Israel replacement theology. This is one of the places that they run in order to say that the church is now somehow spiritual Israel. And you know that I have preached about this. I've made videos about this, YouTube sermons about this, because the word Israel and the concept of what it is to be a Jew doesn't change from the Old Testament into the New Testament, especially considering that the people who made up the early church were first Jewish, which is why Paul keeps saying to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The Jew-Gentile distinction continues in the early church. Context, context, context. You know I'm a fool for context. You know that context will answer so many of these confusing ideas. The context starts in verse 17, which is where we're going to pick up today. And the context is, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of those who are foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you, who does it sound like Paul's talking to there? Since he's identified them as 
you bear the name Jew, since he has identified them as you rely upon the law, who is Paul talking to? The The Jews. It's just that obvious, isn't it? And the context doesn't change from verse 17 to verse 28. Therefore, when Paul says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. Who is he still talking to? The The Jews. Contextually, he is still speaking to the audience that he has addressed in verse 17. In other words, the total group that Paul is talking about when he's talking about inward or outward Judaism, he's talking to a total group that is Jewish. He is talking to Jewish people about what it means to be Jewish. And in Paul's mind, in Paul's thinking, to be genuinely Jewish would be to embrace the Jewish Messiah. You would embrace Christ. Therefore, if you are a Jew, even though you are a descendant of Abraham, even though you have been circumcised, even though you have all those outward ritualistic religious demonstrations that you are Jewish, nevertheless, if you aren't one inwardly, Paul says you're not genuinely then a Jew. What Paul does not say is If you are a Gentile who believes in Christ, that now somehow makes you Jewish. He does not say that anywhere. And in fact, Paul never confuses the language of Israel or Jew with the language of Gentile and church. The church is an amalgam of Jew and Gentile. But he still recognizes the distinctions all the way through here. So... My point is, in beginning this morning, that if you don't understand those distinctions, if you don't remember what we talked about last week, if you don't see that Paul still recognizes that there is a history to the Jews and a history to the Gentiles, then you're not going to understand what he is arguing about. And when you mix and match those categories, you end up making confused theology. And I don't like confused theology. And I don't do confused theology. So let's start reading at chapter 2, verse 1, so that you can hear Paul's thought and argument again. And so that when we hit verse 17, we hit the ground running so that you can hear the continuation of that argument. All right? Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, When you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath 
and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these, having not the law, are a law to themselves." in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, And know his will? How would they know his will? He's talking to a Jewish audience. Their confidence is in the law. Therefore, they know his will because they have the law. They have the commandments. They have the ordinances. They have the prophets. Therefore, they are the ones who would know his will. Can that same thing be said about the Gentiles in Rome? Well, no, they wouldn't know that. So the reason that I read the first part of the chapter was so that you would continue to hear that Jew-Gentile distinction that Paul keeps making to the Jew first, also to the Gentile. Those that are under the law will be judged by the law. Those that aren't under the law, that would be the Gentiles. Those not under the law become a law unto themselves. And in the end then, Since God is not a God of partiality, then everyone is going to stand guilty before God because everyone has in some way broken the law, whether it is the law that was written on stone, whether it is the law that is written on men's hearts, you are guilty anyway, and your conscience is going to accuse or excuse you or the tablets of stone are going to accuse or excuse you, either way, you're going to find yourself standing before the absolute righteous standard of God, and you're going to come up short, Jew or Gentile. Does that all make sense? Yes. So then when he says to one part of the audience, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, 
And you're confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? This is a continuation of Paul's argument. How do you judge somebody else since you yourself are guilty? But he's saying the Jews are especially guilty because they have the revelation from God. They have the law from God that is given them. Look what Paul calls it. He says in the law they have found their instruction They have become mature. They've become correctors of the foolish people. And the law is the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. So that's a huge advantage going in. You Jews have already been instructed in the law. You already have the embodiment of all knowledge and truth from God. And then you go out and try to teach Gentiles. Then you go and try to instruct other people. Then you go try to open the eyes of blind people. And even while you're doing it, you yourself are guilty. You're out there teaching, thou shalt not steal. Okay, which of the Ten Commandments is that? Quick, do the little memorization device in your head. Hmm? It's the Eighth Commandment. Thou shalt not steal. It's right there in the tablets of stone. It's right there in the Big Ten. It's right there in the codifying document with which God made Israel a peculiar and distinct nation. And it starts right out with things like don't kill and don't commit adultery and don't steal. But then if you're teaching other people that the law of God says don't steal... What if you yourself steal? And by the way, what is the standard for stealing? Just wanting something that someone else has. Yeah, taking something that somebody else has. It starts out with you lusting for it. It starts out with you coveting something that you don't have. And then that inner coveting becomes action and you steal something. So is taking a paperclip at work... It's just a paperclip. It costs less than a penny. It's just a paperclip. Is taking a paperclip at work, is that stealing? Yes or no? Yeah, we kind of all agree that it is. Technically, yeah. Anybody here ever stolen a paperclip? Yeah, okay, that's pretty much everybody. So Paul's point is, at the same time that you're sitting in judgment on other people, and at the same time that the Jews are using the law to sit in judgment on other people, At the same time that they're saying, don't steal, they themselves are guilty of stealing. Because remember what James tells us, where the law is concerned, a miss is as good as a mile. He said, if you're guilty of any one infraction of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. Therefore, the curse of the whole law is going to fall on you. And you don't want to do eternity in hell over a paperclip. Thou shalt not steal. And yet you yourself steal 
Well, that makes you a hypocrite, but that also means you're guilty, they're guilty, and you consider yourselves a guide to the blind. He's really showing them the hypocrisy of their ways because I think his over-description of them is a way of kind of mocking them because they consider themselves to be the righteous ones, the descendants of Abraham, the circumcised ones. So he says, if you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law and you boast in God, and you know his will, and you approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and you are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, you yourselves are a light to those who are in darkness, you yourselves are a corrector of the foolish, you yourselves are a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, You dishonor God. So through the very activity that the Jews are doing, again, he's just leveling the playing field. He's demonstrating to the Jews who, again, I'm just going to keep emphasizing this, have that sense that because they are Abraham's seed, because they are Abraham's descendants, and because they have the mark of circumcision, which no other people group has, but that circumcision shows that they are the descendants of Abraham. And then they have the law which came to them directly from Moses. They have the covenants. They have the promises. They have the prophets. They have more advantage than any other people group on the planet. Therefore, that makes them raised up in themselves. One of the things that Martin Luther struggled with, and I've mentioned this a couple times because I think it's a a salient point. One of the things that Luther struggled with and confessed to his abbot was as hard as he tried to repress his sin nature, as much as he tried to repress any activity in his life that could be called sin, he said, every time I reach the point where I think I'm doing pretty good, I end up getting raised up in my own self-confidence and pride, and that's a sin. So it's like a vicious circle. Even when I'm proud of myself for not sinning, that pride is a sin. It's impossible to reach that point where you can say, I am actually, genuinely, totally, completely sinless. Because even the recognition of that sinlessness will raise up that sense of pride in you. It raises up your flesh. It raises up your self-confidence in your own ability to be righteous. And that is anti-God. Well, it's the same thing that Paul is driving at here to the Jews. He is saying, you consider yourselves very right, very holy, because you have had the advantages of Abraham and Moses and the law and the prophets, and you have the revelation of God. That's right. But look at your actions 
Your actions are that you're out there telling people, don't do this, don't steal, don't commit adultery, abhor idols. You're out there telling people that, and yet you yourselves are guilty as sinners. And so when you do that, verse 24 says, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's a really interesting concept. David, King David, when he was king over Israel, when he committed his adultery with Bathsheba and the child was born, you know that he lost that child. One of the things that God accused him of through the prophet Samuel was that he being the king who ought to know better, his sin against God allowed the unbelievers to mock God that they were able to say, well, he's the one who should be doing it, and if he's not doing it, why should I bother? Have you ever heard anybody say to you, I thought you were a Christian? (laughs) A little too familiar for us? It's that same idea, that same concept of, if you say, I am Christian, and then you live in a way that is blatantly not Christian, it gives opportunity for the unbelievers to mock God and say, well, if you who profess to be the real firm believing Christian, if you aren't even committed to your own standards, why should I commit to your standards? Why would you try to convert me to your way of thinking when you yourself don't even do it? Well, this is what Paul is getting at with the Jews. He is saying, you have had all those advantages. You are the descendant of Abraham. You do have the law. And importantly, you do have the circumcision identifying you as the seed of Abraham. And yet, despite the fact that you know the law and you teach the law, it is the law that is going to judge you because you're guilty before the law. And the very fact that you continue to break the law allows the Gentiles to blaspheme God. So that's like double guilt. Not only are you guilty of breaking the law, but you're guilty of giving the unbelievers opportunity to mock God. So he says, you who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? The answer is obviously yes. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Just as it is written. In other words, he's saying, I'm not making this up. This isn't something I just invented. This isn't some novelty. It's in your scripture. It's in your scripture that by acting that way, you allow the Gentiles to blaspheme God. For indeed, verse 25, for indeed, circumcision is of value. Because circumcision does identify them as descendants of Abraham. It does identify them as that particular people group, that nation that God revealed himself to. That circumcision is a valuable thing. He says, for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. In other words, if you're guilty before the law, your circumcision can't save you. It's a good thing you have the circumcision. 
You've been told both by the Abrahamic covenant and by the law of Moses to be circumcised. But that can't save you when you stand before your own breaking of the law. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision becomes null and void. It becomes uncircumcision. So your circumcision can't save you. Your circumcision, your identity with Abraham, your identity with Israel, your identity with Moses and the law can't save you if you're busy breaking the law and giving opportunity to the Gentiles to mock God. Verse 26. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, Remember what we just read. Remember what he said earlier in the chapter. That Gentiles, the uncircumcised, they become a law unto themselves and they do by nature the things that become the law for them so that their conscience accuses or excuses them. If therefore an uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, even though he's uncircumcised, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? It's an interesting statement. Basically what it means is the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Those promises will become that Gentile person's. And he will be marked as belonging to the people of God through the Abrahamic covenant. Now, again, the Jews would say, no, 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 that's a Gentile, we're Jews, we're actual physical descendants, we're circumcised, we're clearly part of the Abrahamic covenant. Paul's coming along and saying, yes, but if you're circumcised and you're breaking the law, your circumcision doesn't help you, doesn't count, it's null and void, it's uncircumcision. But if uncircumcised people do the things that are in the law, then they, becoming a law unto themselves, get grafted in to the Abrahamic covenant. And later Paul's going to use that very language of being grafted in. And we're going to see it when we get to 9, 10, and 11, 3, 4, maybe 7 years from now. But we'll get there. Will not he, says verse 27, will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who, although having the letter of the law and the circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Now, this had to have sent his Jewish audience into a tizzy, because they, as he just described them, they considered themselves the teachers of the unenlightened. They considered themselves the superior in that relationship. And remember what I've been stressing for weeks, that there's a lot of friction between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews consider the Gentiles dogs. They consider them the unwashed, the unclean, the unsaved. Ceremonially unclean their whole lives. And so when Paul comes along and says, those very people, those unclean, unwashed people, are going to judge you, 
that had to have caused his Jewish audience to go, wait, okay, now I was with you up till there. But once you got to there, this is really, really hard for me to ingest. This is hard for me to understand that he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, he's going to judge those who have the letter of the law and circumcision, and yet they transgress the law. So this whole thing, remember that I said in my introduction to the book of Romans, this whole thing is about how is a man justified before God? How do unclean, sinful men stand before God and become truly justified? That's what he's getting at here, that you are either going to be justified by your actual keeping of the law, which he's going to say in a moment, never justified anyone, or you're going to be justified in Christ. But what he's proving at this moment is that there is no justification in and of yourself. There is no justification in your flesh. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You can't run faster or jump high enough to get God so impressed with you that he is going to give you actual justification and eternal righteousness. And because you can't get it in and of yourself, that gives him the platform to introduce salvation through Christ. So at this point, he's just leveling the playing field. Now listen to this transition. He's talking clearly to the Jewish audience. He's introduced the fact that he's talking to those who bear the name Jew. Starting at verse 27, And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, that's a Gentile, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, that's the Jews, who through the letter of the law, that's the Jews, and circumcision are transgressors of the law, that's Jews, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Do you hear the flow now? Do you hear the way Paul has built the argument? He has already said, even if you're circumcised but you don't keep the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Well, then you're really only a Jew if you're one inwardly and not one outwardly. Your outward circumcision is of no value if you're also breaking the law. So this is a continuation of the same thought, the same argument. And may I point out one more time, without beating a dead horse, but I'm into dead horse beating, Paul says nothing here about, and suddenly Gentiles become Jews. It's just not in here. Which means, I want that 15, 20 minutes, half hour of the preacher in Franklin marching around the platform yelling, I'm a Jew. I want my time back. Because he was wrong. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. That is a continuation of him saying, If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? It's the same thing as saying, For indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But... If you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, and not by the letter. And his praise is not from men. Notice Everything he's been building up so far, the Jews want to be considered teachers of men. 
One of the things that Jesus condemned the Pharisees for was that when they did their giving, when they did their alms, when they would make their grand prayers in the temple, they'd blow trumpets so that people would look at them because they wanted to be seen by men. And Jesus says, I tell you, they got their reward. They're getting nothing from God because they've already got men admiring them. Paul is going along the same way and saying, the real praise that you want is praise from God and not praise from men. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. One more theological consideration, and then we'll move briefly into chapter 3. You got time? Everybody good? They drove a long way. They got to get their money's worth. Yeah, it's, it's fine. We here as Baptistic people, we believe in baptizing believers. We participate in what is called believer's baptism. What that means is that we don't sprinkle babies. We don't pour water over the heads of babies. We don't baptize babies. We don't believe in pedo-baptism. The proponents of pedo-baptism say that the reason they do it is to bring their children into the covenant because in the Old Testament, Israel would circumcise their babies in order to bring them into the covenant. And they draw the parallel that Old Testament circumcision is the reason why we then bring our babies into the covenant in the New Testament. You'll notice here that Paul tells you what the type antitype for circumcision is. In the Old Testament, there is a prediction that God is one day going to give us hearts of flesh and take out our stony hearts. Actually, that's a promise that is originally made to Israel and then is extended to us. In the New Testament, that same language is used, and Paul uses it here to say that the antitype of circumcision is God taking out our stony heart and giving us this heart of flesh, bringing us to life again. Paul says here, circumcision is that which is of the heart. So it's no longer about physical outward circumcision. Genuine, true circumcision is God cutting away at your heart. God cutting away at everything that is your desire, your sense of self, what you love, how you live, and giving you, awakening you to the realities of not only him and eternity, but the reality of your own sinfulness, the reality of Christ as Savior. All of that is referred to as the circumcision of the heart. So that means that the Bible already provides us a type antitype, which is circumcision in the Old Testament, and then the language of circumcision in the New Testament. Therefore, it's not necessary to say that the antitype of Old Testament circumcision is New Testament baby baptism. Instead, I am convinced that the Bible says you baptize those who profess faith. And so we baptize those who profess faith. 
There, that was a little theological aside. That takes us to chapter 3. Here's the natural question then. Oh, yes, sir. Sandy, you have a question? Good, I can get a drink of water. Yes, sir. A man stated about circumcision, as is with, as is with um, the rainbow. It was given as a token mm-hmm. for manifestation. I didn't see it. I, I can't find it in my, in my mind where I read recalling that circumcision was given as a part of salvation attached to the law. Yeah, uh, circumcision is not part of New Testament salvation, no. So I guess what I'm heading with this is, what we just read, it appears that the, the Jews seem to have attached it to salvation some kind of way. They absolutely had, yes. Which is, they should not have, right? Right. After Abraham was given, he was declared righteous because he believed, not because of the circumcision. Right, and he was declared righteous when he believed, then he was told to be circumcised. So it wasn't the circumcision that saved him, it was the token, it was the mark between him and God. And circumcision is not in the law that that I can recall, right? It is, it's incorporated from the Abrahamic covenant into the law, yes, part of the law does say to circumcise your children on the eighth day, yes. But... If we say that we are new covenant believers, then we'd have to find somewhere in the new covenant that that law of circumcision is carried over, and it's not. Instead, Paul does the same thing all New Testament writers do with circumcision. They apply it to the circumcision of the heart, and that becomes what I keep calling the antitype of Old Testament circumcision. Does that kind of answer your question? Because you are correct that, yes, the Jews had seen both their association with Abraham, which was the mark of circumcision, and their association with Moses, which was their law-keeping. They saw that essentially as justification. That's what they were willing to be saved on. And that's another one of the reasons that it was just so difficult for them to reach the point of understanding their own depravity, their own sinfulness, and that the only way to salvation is through Christ because they were believing they could do it themselves. Make sense? Yeah. This is perhaps a good place to say any other questions? Do we understand the Jew-Gentile distinction of chapter 2? We get it? Because now he's going to ask the question, Well, then, what advantage does the Jew have? I mean, here you've been following Moses for 1,400 years. Here you can reach all the way back to Abraham, and you have the mark in your body to show that you're Abraham's seed. You have the kingdom promises. You have the Davidic covenant. You have the history of the scriptures. Well, then what's the advantage if you and Gentiles are all guilty? What was the advantage of living all that time that way if in the end you become uh, equal to dogs? What's the point? Yeah. 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 I'm ready to get upset. (laughs) Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? Well, great in every respect. First of all, 
that they, the Jews, were entrusted with the oracles of God. The only reason that we still have the Old Testament and the only reason that the Old Testament remains consistent to this day. Just recently, in the Qumran caves, there were a whole bunch of pieces, fragments, copies of documents that included Old Testament documents, which allowed textual critics to compare the current versions of the Old Testament that we have with ancient versions of the Old Testament. And they discovered that virtually nothing had changed. And the reason that we can have confidence that when Paul writes in the New Testament that the scripture is God-breathed, theonostos, when he says that, he's speaking of the Old Testament. And the reason we can say confidently that the Old Testament we hold in our hands is the very word of God and that it hasn't been tampered with to the point where it's changed, where the theology is consistent and that we can trust our souls to it. The reason we believe that is because God gave it to a particular group of people who knew it as the word of God and so they enshrined it and they kept it. And they were very, very careful about copying it because they understood that it was the very word of God. This was the work of God they were doing. Well, that's a huge advantage. Of all the people on the earth, you were given the very word of God to protect and copy and keep down through the ages. Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? This is really fascinating language if some did not believe of course there were some among the Jews who did not believe in Christ they killed him that's how much they didn't believe in him and even as Paul is writing he's being thrown out of tabernacles every place that he goes he would go to the Jews first he would preach in their tabernacles he would preach in their synagogues And then when they rejected him, he would go out to the Gentiles, but always to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So everywhere that he went, he encountered the unbelief of the Jews. But if some did not believe, their unbelief does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Will it? Okay, now he has said that within the context of saying that they have the oracles of God. So what faithfulness of God is he talking about here? He's talking about the fact that God will be faithful to the promises he made to Israel in the Old Testament. And just because they didn't believe it, and just because we don't believe it, Nevertheless, God remains faithful to every word he's ever said. And so he is assuring the Jews here that though they believe in Christ, all those promises that they're going to find in the Old Testament are still good and valid promises to Israel because their disbelief doesn't change the fact that God is absolutely faithful to the very oracles that he gave them. Do you follow that? Great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. And then Paul, who's very much like me in this aspect, says, will it? 
Which is like me saying, does that make sense? Will it? His answer is, may it never be. No, negative, goose egg, nada, not going to happen. It will never be that the unbelief of human beings will change the faithfulness of God. And God is faithful to his promises and faithful to his word. Even as we are unfaithful, he nevertheless remains. Even as we are faithless, he remains nevertheless faithful. So may it never be that we would nullify God. Rather, let God be true, even though every man is a liar. Okay, what kind of lies is he talking about here? Well, the kind of lies that we hear to this very day. The lies that will tell us the word of God isn't trustworthy. The lies that will tell us, you know, God's not really up there and he doesn't really care about you. The lies that started back at the Garden of Eden with, didn't God say? It's always been that way, the creeping doubt that the society would like to place on us, that the world would like to place on us, that sense of, well, you know, God hasn't been that faithful. And I don't know if I can really trust his word. And unfortunately, so much of what passes for theology these days is tantamount to saying God's not faithful, especially when they say, and I know, I know I'm beating a dead horse here. I get it. Dead horse speeding going on at this very moment. But whenever you say, whether theologically, whether you're just trying to be intellectually clever or whatever else, when you end up saying God made promises in the Old Testament to a particular group of people, but he's not going to keep those promises to that particular group of people, then you're saying that God is faithless. And God will remain faithful even when you're faithless. So whether it's an outright denial of God and his word or whether it's an intellectual and theological denial of God and his word, nevertheless, what God has promised, God is going to do despite you. He doesn't care what you think. The only thing he cares is that you think what he thinks. That's why I like that phrase, saying God's words after him. And thinking God's thoughts after him. We find God's thoughts, God's ways, God's promises, God's intention. We find that in the Bible. And then our responsibility is to agree with what we've seen in the word. And it doesn't matter how clever sounding or how intellectual our denials of God's word are. If you deny what it plainly says, that's a denial of God's faithfulness. And he's going to be faithful anyway. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it's written, that thou mightest be justified in thy works and might prevail when thou art judged. The best way to understand that phrase is to go back and look at it in its original context which is in the book of Psalms. So turn back to the book of Psalms for just a moment. Go to Psalm 51. This is David pouring out his heart before God and admitting to God that he is a sinner. In fact, I may just start reading from the very beginning of that psalm. Chapter 51 of the book of Psalms, starting at verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God. 
according to thy loving kindness. According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. There's a good prayer right there. I know I'm guilty, but through your compassion and through your loving kindness, just blot out my transgressions. That's the only way they're ever going to go away. It's not going to be based on my self-justification. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only I have sinned, and I have done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you do judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. In other words, I was a sinner from the very start. I'm a sinner through and through constantly. So then he says, if you were to judge me, this is verse 4, the second half, if you were to judge me, what you spoke against me would be absolutely right. And you would be completely blameless in judging me. If you condemned me, you'd be right. Because I understand my own transgression. My sin's always before me. And against you and you only have I sinned. Therefore, if you judge me for my sin, you'd be completely right in doing so. Which is why he starts with, be gracious to me, my God. And through your loving kindness and according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Okay, that's the context of that original statement. Paul picks it up in Romans 3. And says, God's always going to be found true. Every man is a liar. Every man is a, every man is a liar. And then he quotes from the psalm that thou would be justified in your words and might prevail. And the NASB says, when thou art judged. But that's why I wanted to go back and look at the original context. It is when you are judging. And then that continues. That same thought continues into verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Okay, now Paul is about to tell us that apparently there was a rumor going around about him. And the rumor was that he was preaching a salvation that didn't require any works. And that, in fact, since salvation was an act of grace, that the way that you could really emphasize the grace of God was by being as successful a sinner as you could be. So you would ramp up the sin in your own life in order to demonstrate how good the grace of God was. And that rumor was going around about Paul. So he says, but... If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Now he's getting that bit of theology from what he just said. He looked back at the Psalms and he looked at the fact that God was just when he judged. So therefore, in his judgment, if he inflicts wrath on people, that doesn't make him cruel. That doesn't make him capricious. 
that makes him just because everyone is guilty he is not giving to people what they don't deserve he is giving to people what they have earned they have earned his judgment and he is completely just in judging them the God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous is he I'm speaking in human terms no may it never be there's that phrase again May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? He's going to judge the world in righteousness. He's not going to judge the world because he's cruel or unrighteous or unjust in the things he does. But if, through my lie, because people are accusing him of making stuff up and coming up with a new theology... But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come? Okay, did you understand that sort of convoluted sentence? What he's saying is there are people out there who will say about me and they're trying to slander me. There are people out there who will say that my theology is let us do evil so that good will come. Let us sin all the more that grace may abound. And then he's saying, but if that lie, if what I'm teaching, if what I'm saying is a lie, if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a liar, as a sinner? So that is not his theology. It is very clear that Paul's theology is not, okay, you're saved by grace, so sin all the more that grace may abound. Even though people said it about him then and they say it about him now, it's not his theology. Instead, his theology is everybody is guilty. And the only way that anybody is going to be saved is if God does the saving. Are you understanding yet that Paul is saying everyone is guilty? Are you getting that? Yes. Because we're going to pick up next week at verse 9, but I'm going to read it for just a moment so that I can make my closing comments. Verse 9 says, what then? Are we better than they? He's saying, are we Jews better than those Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none that understand. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one okay so he's just said Jew or Gentile across the board there's not one righteous one there's not one good one there's not one that ever stirred up his heart to seek after God in other words let's compare the theology of Paul to the theology of the modern world for just a moment and I think you'll see the contrast 
In the world right now, in the society right now, there is a philosophy being bandied about. Remembering, again, that Paul said that we all, as human beings, have an intrinsic sense of right and wrong. The society today says, yes, it is true, there is something wrong with you, but it's not your fault. It's somebody else's fault. Somebody else is responsible for the fact that there's something wrong with you. There are people who feel oppressed by a hat. There's all of this social justice language creeping in now and even creeping into the church that starts with there's something wrong with you, but it's not your fault. It's somebody else's fault. Somebody else did it. Somebody else is oppressing you. Somebody else has used your characteristics to make you lesser than them. Just this week, this perhaps will give you some sense of what I'm driving at. Just this week, a congresswoman from New York, there now all of you know who I'm talking about, a young Hispanic congresswoman from New York identified herself as cisgender. Do you know what that means? It means that she identifies sexually with the gender she was born with. That's called normal, okay? So... She feels and admitted on a radio interview that her cisgenderness gave her privilege. And she apologized for her cisgender privilege. You see what I'm getting at? In other words, she's saying just the very fact that I identify sexually with the gender and sex with which I was born, that gives me privilege over people who don't identify with the sex or gender with which they were born. Therefore, I'm going to have more ability within the society to function without any kind of uh, prejudice against me that those people are not going to have. In other words, there is something wrong with those people, but it's not their fault. It's not them, it's me and my privilege. It's us as a society holding them down. Do you get what I'm saying? You've all heard the language, you've seen it everywhere. This concept of there is something wrong with you, but it's not your fault. The Pauline theology says there's something wrong with you, and it's you. (laughs) And I don't care who you are. I don't care what your sexual proclivities are. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what history you are. I don't care Jew or Gentile. I don't care what your social philosophy is. Before God, you're a sinner, and the judgment for being a sinner is going to fall on you. Notice that Paul's theology does not say anything about the Roman society. And Roman society was deeply corrupt. And he doesn't say, in order to go well with the church, we need to fix the society. Instead, he says, live a quiet life in the society you find yourself in. Work with your own hands. Be good citizens. Pray for those who have rule over you. 
but he never says, go out and fix the society. No, instead what he says is, there's a kingdom of righteousness coming. The kingdom that belongs to Christ is coming, and then holiness is going to dwell on this planet. But right now, you're in the world, but not of it. Those are Jesus' words. And so, understand the difference, because you're going to be bombarded. It's, It's a growing, sweeping wave right now in the world that's encroaching on the church. Where it is saying, yes, 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 there's something wrong with you, but you can find someone to blame for what's wrong with you. If you're feeling oppressed, if you're having a hard time, if it's difficult for you in this life, that's not your fault. And we as a government, we as a society have to find some way to recompense you so that you can feel equal with everybody else. George is taller than me. George could dunk on me. That's not fair. You got it? Wait, I can fix that. Now I can dunk on George. My point is... (laughs) Yeah, I can't dribble a wall from up there. My point is, I don't care who you are. You, You have some limitation. And no matter who you are, you're going to get old, you're going to get sick, and you're going to die. I don't care who you are or how rich you are, you've lost loved ones. Life down here is hard. And neither the Bible, nor society, nor life owes you anything. Just because you're here, nobody promised you that everybody else was going to work hard not to offend you. The Bible says there's something wrong with everybody, and it's you. You're what's wrong with you. And the only way that can be fixed can't be by you, because you're too wrong. The only way that can be fixed is for someone else who has power, who has that affiliation with God, who is God himself, Only if he stands in the gap and acts as your intercessor, only then can your sins be genuinely blotted out. And only then can you be fixed. And you can be fixed eternally. But you can't do it. Society can't do it. The world at large can't do it. Because you, the society, and the world are deeply corrupt. So it doesn't matter how much the world tries to fix itself. It's not going to be able to do it do you see the difference between the worldly philosophy and biblical theology I'm going to drive it home the world says there might be something wrong with you but it's not your fault the Bible says there's something wrong with you and it's completely your fault and you're going to pay or you're going to trust in Christ you got it Yes, sir. We have met the enemy and he is us. It's very pogo of you. Yes. yes. <laughs> Any questions? I want the t-shirts. I want a t-shirt that says what? The problem is me? Yeah, there's yeah. something wrong with you in it too. <laughs> that would be a great t-shirt, by the way. There is something wrong with you and it's you. 
<laughs> Questions at all? Comments? Anything? All right, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Jerry and Judy, say goodbye to yourself. Goodbye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.